Welcome back to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Deborah Levison is an award-winning writer, and reviewers describe her debut novel, A Nest of Snakes, as unforgettable, powerful, fresh, raw, and different. Her other book is a true crime story called The Crate, and it won seven literary awards and has been called gorgeous, heart-wrenching, and brilliant. Both of these incredible works of art bravely and extremely sensitively deal with childhood trauma. In her life, Deborah has met many, many survivors of childhood trauma. In fact, she doesn't have to look any further than her own parents who survived the Holocaust. In both books, Deborah gives her victims a voice, victims who might otherwise be voiceless. Please welcome Deborah Levison to Breaking Brave. I'm speechless. I'm going to say this right off the top. I am totally speechless. And in fact, I'm having trouble making time to record this interview with the brilliant author, Deborah Levinson, because I've got 60 more pages left in A Nest of Snakes, and I I cannot put it down. So Deborah Levinson, welcome to Breaking Brave. Welcome to the program. Welcome to the show. Hi, Marilyn. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you very much for having me. But more, thank you so much for reading my books. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't put them down. And I'm an avid reader. And so we have, I say this too often, but I'm kind of proud of it. We have a global audience. uh, And it grows every time we interview a new guest. And so I'm not going to read some bio or something. I have a million notes on my wall, which we'll get to. But why don't why don't you tell the world who you are, Deborah? Well, I'm talking to you now from my home in Connecticut. Okay. Where I have lived for the second half of my life. The first half of my life was spent in Canada. So I'm a Toronto girl, Toronto born and bred. And um, and it wasn't until the late 90s that I actually moved down to the U.S. with my very young family, my husband, two babies, moved down here for a work opportunity for my husband. And since then, we've had a third child, so an American who can be president if he wishes. Doubt that would ever happen, but... Um, I've been a lifelong writer, a publicist, a journalist, and since 2018, a published author with two books. Okay, name them, please. Name the books in the order in which they were released out into the world, please. (laughs) Well, my first book baby was called The Crates, A Story of War, a Murder, and Justice. And that is the book of my heart, which I guess we'll talk about a little bit later, Um, And then my first novel, my debut novel, released just a few months ago, and it's called A Nest of Snakes. You know, both books have a lot of overlap, even though the first book is nonfiction. It's actually a true crime story. And uh, the second book is a novel, as I mentioned. But even so, there actually is quite a bit of overlap and some overlapping themes, which I guess really is no surprise because, you know, they're both coming from me. And I I suppose I have a, a, a very distinct worldview and some topics that I really feel strongly about that I like to explore. So they are they are related, even though the stories, the subjects are very different. 
Excellent. And I'm going to use this moment to say, first of all, you are covering, taking on, embodying some very brave subject matters with each book, completely different subject matters. And we're just six minutes into this now. So The Crate, which I think we should start with since it was your first, The Crate deals with so much. But I'm going to say scary, terrifying memories from the Holocaust. Mostly, I'm saying as a reader, because you taught me, Deborah, so much through reading that book. The second one, A Nest of Snakes, is abuse. Physical, sexual, mental within private schools, specifically in the book Boys, but we can go to all levels of private schools afterwards. So let's start with The Crate. When you and I first talked, when we decided we were going to do this interview, you told me the story and I was gobsmacked because somehow I didn't know it. I was born and raised and lived in Canada my entire life. But why don't you tell the world, what was the event that created this book? an event I never would have imagined would happen to my family. Um, An event that really started with a phone call in 2010. My, My husband, my kids and I happened to be in Florida at the time. We were down there for a baseball tournament. My older son uh, was a big baseball player at the time. And my brother from Canada called my cell phone and he said, first he told me to sit down, which, you know, as we all know, is the great uh, prelude to bad news. But he told me to sit down and he said that he had discovered this wooden crate that was nailed tightly shut. It was shoved up underneath the ground and the floor of my family cottage in Muskoka, which you might be familiar with. It's a beautiful, beautiful region of Ontario, about two and a half hours north of Toronto. It's an area of these majestic forests and 1,700 lakes, and it's on the Canadian Shield, you know, these beautiful outcroppings of granite rock and this very pristine area of countryside where my co- where my family has had a cottage since the 1970s. And we'll talk about the cottage separately. But um, so my brother called to say that he had discovered this wooden crate at the cottage. It was hidden away, but he discovered it. And he knew right away it didn't belong where it was. Um, and when that crate was opened, it was the most horrifying thing you can imagine. And that whole discovery just turned my family upside down. You know, at the time, my kids were pretty young uh, and I wanted to protect them from the violence of the whole situation. And my brother was absolutely furious because he became the primary murder suspect in a murder investigation And we all felt so violated because, you know, there was obviously a 911 call, which sort of triggered the media. And then before we knew it, the newspapers, the television crews, the magazine writers, they were all descending on what was this very private 
very secluded sanctuary from my family. Um, and so there was this, you know, this big sense of violation. And of course, we were terrified. We didn't know if we had been targeted in some way because we had no details at the beginning. But the worst part was that my parents, who were already elderly at that point, were traumatized because they never expected that they would have to face this kind of human evil again in their lives. You know, they had faced that kind of evil much, much earlier before they came to Canada. And to have them, you know, have to look this sort of human evil in the eye, right on their doorstep, in the one place in the world where they felt safest, was just traumatic for them and for us to witness. And so, you know, when the whole thing happened, I was really caught in my own head about how it affected me personally and my family. And I think it really wasn't until there were results of an autopsy that showed, you know, there was an actual victim here and it was a young woman. It wasn't until that point that I started thinking, okay, um, Clearly, there's a family that's grieving the loss of a, a mother, a daughter, and we're not the actual victims here. And so, you know, my, my thinking had to shift a little bit. And as the whole situation progressed with a murder investigation and so forth, people started saying to me, you should think about writing the story. And I had to sort of stop and think, okay, there's an actual murder victim here who has lost her voice and I'm a writer. Maybe I can give her a voice and tell her story. And then it wasn't until I was deeply into telling the story of the crime and the discovery, the investigation, the trial later. Um, it wasn't until I was really deeply into writing it that I realized for readers to understand the impact of this crime on my family, I had to tell my family's story too. And that's how The Crate uh, was born into this sort of intertwining of true crime and the Holocaust. Now, you haven't actually said, so I'll say before trigger warning here, you've described a murder and you've described a young woman. What was in The Crate? You know, I don't believe in uh, not giving away spoilers. If people want to read the book, they will. So I will just say it was uh, obviously a body, but not bones. It was um, fresh in that it was extraordinarily well preserved. So this was the body of a young woman named Samantha Collins. And um, Samantha had disappeared a few years earlier and she, at the time of her death, was 29 years old. By the time we found the crate, she would have been 32. And, um, and not only was this horrifying in and of itself that this young woman had been killed, had lost her life, but there was the additional horror that she was also dismembered. And it was a horror that I tried very hard to keep from my family, especially my youngest child, who um, I thought would just be traumatized by that detail. 
And, um, and it, you know, to think of what her family must have gone through, I just can't imagine. And now I know her family members as well. So it's just this ongoing sense of tragedy of what happened to her. I dreamt about it after I finished that book. It stayed with me. It stayed in my core. How did Samantha Collins' mother and sister react to you writing this story, Deborah? Were they relieved, happy, sad? I mean, what what was their reaction to you saying, I'm going to tell your daughter slash sister's story? What was the reaction? Well, before I even uh, had a chance to tell them, the task of finding them was uh, was interesting. You know, I was at the point where the book would be published soon. And I had some details about Samantha and her life from what had already been written in the media. And it was all public record. And I had an editor who said I had to dig deeper. And of course, I had no idea how to do that. I'm not an investigator. I'm not a detective. Um, I didn't know what to do. And at the same time, I really wanted Samantha's family's blessing. I didn't want my book to just appear and be a shock to them. I really wanted them to give me a green light and a, a virtual hug to say, go ahead and do this. We're, you know, we support you in this. And so I had to find them. And um, I remember, you know, looking through the yellow pages and even contacting victim support services through the courthouse where the trial had been held. And of course, they wouldn't give me any information. Um, I knew their names. I knew the names of Dorothy and Nicole from the media, from articles that had been written, from the coverage of the trial and the investigation. And, um, you know, I was a loss. I really didn't know how to go about finding them until one of my kids said, well, did you try Facebook? Duh. I hadn't. I, you know, I wasn't big on social media at the time. This was maybe 2016 or so. And, um, and I did, I did go on Facebook and I found two women, two profiles I thought could be Samantha's mother and Samantha's sister. And I sent them private messages, introducing myself uh, as a writer and introducing, you know, my connection to the cottage where all of this had played out and asking them to contact me so that I could talk to them directly. I didn't hear anything back. Months went by, no word from either one of them. It was almost a year to the day that I had reached out to them when I woke up one morning and logged onto Facebook and there were two separate messages, one from Dorothy, one from Nicole. Both of them said just about the exact same thing, which was, oh, I just saw your message. And yes, I'd love to speak with you. And this had come literally weeks before I was due to submit this completed manuscript. And fortunately, I was able to talk to Nicole on the phone. I was able to talk to Dorothy on the phone at length. And they gave me this wonderful background information on Samantha and her life. And really, um, you know, she became a rounded person rather than this one-dimensional victim that 
the media had been portraying. And not only had the media portrayed her that way, but also blamed her to some degree. And I was really upset with with the way the media had characterized her, you know, as if this were her fault. And with the information from Nicole and Dorothy, uh, I was able to round out the manuscript and fill it in, fill in the gaps and really tell Samantha's story, which was my goal from the beginning, you know, to tell her story and give her a voice. So that that continues to freak me out to this day. The fact that it took so long to get in touch with them, that they both responded on the exact same day and that it came just in time for me to actually get it into the book before it was published. So did they read, did you ask them to, did you want them to read the manuscript before you you finally had the book published? Or how did that play out? Uh, They did not read the manuscript. Um, We did go over and over all the notes and so on. And, um, you know, thankfully, the other the other lucky thing was that I had found a publisher who was willing to put the book out pretty quickly. So as you probably know, publishing is a very slow business and it could be a year, two years even before a book um, whose manuscript you've completed actually hits the shelves. And with my publisher, I had explained, you know, my mother was already in her late 80s. And because so much of the story is about her and her life and my dad's life, I really, really wanted her to be able to see the book come out and see the whole process and be part of the journey. And um, and so the book came out in just a few, well, really just a few months. So, but Dorothy and Nicole, you know, got the first two copies. As soon as I got my author copies, I sent them off to Dorothy and Nicole And um, I'm very grateful for that. I'm very grateful for their reactions and their support. But, you know, that whole thing with finding them on Facebook and the way that whole um, communication turned out, it's just one more example of the coincidences and the fate that's a theme throughout that whole book. I want to, first of all, ask you to describe for our listeners your mom and dad, in terms of what was their background. And when we talk about here, their story and, you know, trauma being relived, if you will, by the finding and opening of this crate. Let's put that in a context before I ask how your mom reacted to the book. So can you tell us just a little bit about your mom and dad or a lot, whatever you want to say about them, because I feel like I know them having read the book. Both my parents are Hungarian. My mother was born in Budapest in 1930 and had just a very nice, normal childhood. She was an only child and was a little bit overprotected. In fact, was very overprotected. When I think of young girls, you know, specifically 13-year-old girls, and I'll tell you why afterwards, when I think of 13-year-old girls These days, there is a level of sophistication, right? You know, they have their cell phones and their makeup and their sexy dresses and their pouty faces on social media and everything else. My mom at 13 was very unsophisticated. She was very sheltered. She still played with dolls at that age. 
So a very, very um, wholesome kind of childhood in Budapest. And Budapest was a beautiful city, you know, the Paris of the uh, of, of Europe. And um, when I was there, I was just shocked at how beautiful the architecture was, you know, the opera house, the coffee houses. They have these last great remaining coffee houses of Europe that are so ornate and so, uh, so majestic. Um, it really is a beautiful city. All the bridges over the Danube River. Um, and, and of course, the synagogue that my mother's family belonged to was also one of the landmarks of Europe and absolutely just a beautiful structure inside and out. And so it was very hard for me when I went to Hungary to sort of uh, do this pilgrimage and retrace my parents' steps. It was really hard for me to wrap my head around this concept that people who could create such a beautiful society for themselves were also capable of such ugliness. Because what started as this very nice, normal childhood for my mom became very ugly when she turned 13. So she had a lot of friends. She had Jewish friends, non-Jewish friends. She played violin her whole life and really treasured her violins. And interestingly, she went to a Scottish missionary school. So now you'd wonder why a Jewish girl was going to a Scottish missionary, a Protestant school. But the school was known to have one of the best academic programs in the region. So my, my grandparents wanted to send her there. And by the time she arrived at that school in the middle grades, the founder of the school, Jane Haining, had built this warm, welcoming kind of a, a community in the school where it became half Jewish half non-Jewish. So literally half the student population at this Scottish missionary school was Jewish. And not only that, she brought in a rabbi on Friday afternoons for these Jewish kids. And I'm just going to take a second to tell a little story about the founder, about Jane Haining, because it's just mind-blowing to me. So she was this very warm person, as I said, who had built up this incredible school in Budapest. When things got bad, so now after March 19th of 1944, when the Nazis had already occupied Hungary, when it became unsafe for kids to be out in the streets and going to school, Jane happened to be in Scotland on holiday when the Scottish church sent out a, a, a decree, I guess, for all its missionaries across Europe to come back to Scotland because it was no longer safe, you know, in the war. And Jane, who was in Scotland at the time, decided to travel back to Budapest, which was a very dangerous prospect. You know, she was traveling back into a war zone. She went back to the school because she said, that her place was protecting the Jewish children in her charge. That was her responsibility. So she got back to the school. Now at the school, there happened to be this housekeeper 
And the housekeeper was very sympathetic to the Nazi cause. When Jane found that out, she dismissed the housekeeper. And in retaliation, the housekeeper's son denounced Jane to the authorities. The son said that Jane was harboring Jewish children at the, at the school. And the Arrow Cross came in and rounded up all the Jewish kids with Jane and took them to Auschwitz. And they perished together in the gas chambers. And Jane Haining is thought to be one of, if not the only, Scottish national to die in Auschwitz. And there are some absolutely beautiful memorials to her. There's one in Budapest, there's one in Scotland, and there's one in Israel at Yad Vashem. So just an incredibly uh, remarkable woman. And my mom was very, very upset to hear that she had passed away. But your mom was at the school. And so did, did your mom get rounded up and taken to Auschwitz? So no, actually, so there, were, there were two, uh, two separate streams of students. There were those who okay. boarded at the school, and then there were just the day students, like my mom. And, um, and so my mom went home at night. She wasn't there living at the school. Those were the kids who were rounded up with Jane. God bless her. Yeah. Isn't that just... The bravery. I'm in Scotland. Scotland said, don't go back. Don't go out and outside of the borders of Scotland because it's too dangerous. And for the love of these kids, and she knew the Jewish kids were in dire, dire trouble. She went back and she did her best to help. God bless her. I hope I get a chance to, you've seen some of these monuments, Deborah, because you've gone back and you've visited. And uh, how did that make you feel when you went back and you visited? Um, the first time I was in Hungary was before I really knew everything about my parents' stories. And that's a, that's an integral part of the crate about how I learned my mother's story, my father's story. So that's a big part of the plot. And when I went to Hungary the first time was actually with my husband. He was not my husband at the time. Uh, I don't think we were even engaged, but we did go to Hungary as part of, you know, some travels in Europe. So it didn't have that significance to me the first time. The second time I went with my dad, my brother, my oldest child, my daughter, Jordan, and my brother's older child, Jason. And that trip was a very, very different one where we actually went to uh, the village my father was born in. And it was a very emotional trip. So, you know, as I said, my mother was born in, in Budapest and ended up spending time in the ghetto. And I'll just quickly describe how that happened. Uh, so as I mentioned, March 19th, 1944 is when the Nazis invaded Hungary. And um, before long, there was a, an incident where a group of Nazi thugs came and pulled my mother's father out of their apartment and beat him to a pulp in the street in front of my mom, who was 13 years old at the time. And then not long after that, took away all the young men of the city to forced labor. So my mother's father was among that group. 
And then not long after that, they came back and rounded up all the women. So my mother's mother, my grandmother, was rounded up, put on a plane, and uh, I'm sorry, put on a train, the destination of which was Auschwitz. And that left my mom all alone at the age of 13. As I mentioned, very unsophisticated, very sheltered. She'd never been left alone in the apartment before. And now she found herself completely on her own with no idea of how to fend for herself. And that lasted for about a week. Um, And then they came and rounded up all the elderly who'd been left behind, as well as all the children, and brought them into what became a ghetto. They cordoned off four city blocks. Um, the synagogue that I mentioned, the Dohanyi Utsa Templum, it was called in Hungarian, formed the perimeter of part of that ghetto. And so my mother, my mother was brought there. Um, and at 13 years old, she was ordered to keep the younger children quiet, quote unquote, no matter what. So uh, she spent the good part of a year in, uh, in the ghetto before liberation. And then meanwhile, my father, who was born in Balashadyarmat, which is a small village north of Budapest, right on the border of what had been Czechoslovakia. Uh, my father also had a very nice, normal childhood, you know, very wholesome kind of rural Um, childhood where he had one sister he was very close to. Both his parents came from very large families, 10 children in each family. And um, he spent a lot of time skating on frozen ponds. He was a little bit more religious than my mother was. And when, when Hungary annexed Czechoslovakia, he suddenly had access to the Carpathian Mountains. So he and the other village boys did a lot of skiing. And anyway, um, he was 17 years old on March 19th, 1944, when the Nazis invaded his village as well. And they created, you know, again, with the help of the Hungarian Arrow Cross, they created another ghetto in his village and brought all the Jewish villagers to this ghetto. So my father's family was one of four families that were shoved into a house. So one family in each room of this house. And my father was there for... Uh, a few months before they came and rounded up all the men. So his father was taken away. And then in July of 1944, they came back for the younger boys. And at 17, my father was one of the youngest of a group of 200 boys that was taken away for forced labor. He was taken to a cattle car where he was shoved up inside this cattle car with you know, the butt of a Nazi rifle shoved in so tight that he couldn't lift his arms from his sides. He said these boys in that cattle car were standing there like stalks of asparagus. And if you can imagine, Marilyn, they were in that car for five days, five days of no food, no water except what they came and sprayed through the through the open windows with hoses. You know, there was a, a can where all these 200 boys had to relieve themselves. 
And it was just a nightmare ride. And after five days, you know, the cattle car doors opened and whoever was still alive stumbled off. And believe me when I tell you that many teenage boys died standing up during that journey. It's something that in the privileged lives we lead here in North America, it's hard to fathom this. But it's so, so important to talk about it. Um, I recognize you haven't answered the question yet, but I don't want you to yet. Because where, where we're at right now, I'd like you to talk about the notion of the fact that there are so many millennials. Let me quote my wall here. 70%, two-thirds, 70% of millennials have never heard the word Auschwitz. And there's only in the United States of America, only 16 states that mandate Holocaust education within their curriculum. How? How is this happening? So I believe it's now up to 17. And I'm very grateful that Connecticut, where I live, is actually one of the states that does mandate Holocaust education. But still, there, there are some very loose definitions of what that education actually entails. So I know there's an awful lot of work to do. But that survey that you're talking about um, of millennials that was actually done a couple of years ago, that survey was absolutely terrifying. And one of the reasons that I do a lot of speaking about the Holocaust, you know, the fact that millennials don't know that six million Jews were murdered and have, uh, to a large extent, not heard of Auschwitz and don't even know if they were taught anything about the Holocaust and don't know any details, um, all of that is really, really upsetting to me. And uh, I don't know that the situation is that much better in Canada. Um, and to a large extent, I think it's up to the individual teachers, whether or not they're going to teach about the Holocaust in social studies or in history. Um, and again, there's, you know, a lot of discretion about how they will present it. So I recognize that it's an extremely difficult topic. Um, that we want to be careful not to traumatize kids when we talk about it, because it can be very traumatic, and it certainly was for me when I learned about it. Um, so we don't want to traumatize them. But at the same time, we have to be very careful of sugarcoating it too. And I've heard that there is now a new format of the Anne Frank story being used in some schools, it's a play, and it has a happy ending. And I can't for the life of me think of how this story could have a happy ending. But, um, you know, the danger is not teaching our kids about it. And not only that, but right now, look at our society. We are rife with hatred and rife with intolerance and rife with anti-Semitism. Um, the whole thing is just horrifying. It really is. In, in some ways, you know, my father, the fact that he's not witnessing what our society is, is turning into and the direction that we're heading, you know, he, he's spared that at least. God rest his soul. 
Teaching the Holocaust is not a matter of perpetuating victimhood, but of preventing it. Those words sound familiar. (laughs) Yes, absolutely, they should. Philosopher George Santayana, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. I understand what you're saying. I so agree with it that we don't want to traumatize anybody. But this happened. Six million Jews lost their lives. And good for you. You're educating the world about a very, very critical time. And if we don't understand it, as you've just explained, with all of the hatred and divisiveness in the world right now, we do potentially repeat the mistakes. I was grade five and asked to do a project on the Holocaust. Now, I'm an old woman. I'm 63. So we did cover it in school then. And I remember learning things through the research for my project that I carried with me for the rest of my life. And I think that's incredibly important that the world continues. It's like Remembrance Day. It's, 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 it's these things happen. These people didn't lose their lives for nothing, please. So I'm going back to what did your mother think of the book? So first of all, my mother's always been a voracious reader. And her opinion was very valuable to me. I would feed her every chapter, sometimes every page as I wrote it. And, uh, and then when the book was finished, I think she must have read the whole thing 10 times. She's not the most reliable critic because she loves everything I do. So she's gushed over it and, you know, tells me again and again how she can't believe that her story is written in the pages of a book, which makes me feel wonderful. Um, But, you know, for me, it's also a gift to my children because I want them and I want future generations to know their family history, and I want them to know about the Holocaust in a very personal and intimate way. And I want them to know their grandparents and their great-grandparents' stories specifically. Um, you know, I, I really believe that as we're losing the firsthand stories of Holocaust survivors, that it really behooves the second generation to, you know, start telling their stories for them and um, that we have to be out there talking. You know, my parents, when I was young, when my brother and I were, were young, my parents had a mantra. They would say over and over again to us, education, education, education. And, you know, they had these very heavy Hungarian accents. They would always say, People can take everything away from you except your education. And I never understood what they were talking about. So again, this was when I was a child and I didn't know my parents were Holocaust survivors and I had, um, I had not heard anything about the Holocaust and had no idea of their context and their history. And also I walked on eggshells in my family as a child because I was always afraid to be disrespectful or disobedient in some way because my parents seemed so fragile. I felt like if I said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing, my parents would just shatter. So I was always very careful. I was always tiptoeing around um, difficult topics, not asking a lot of questions. 
So when my parents said that, education, 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 I had no idea what they were talking about. You know, why would somebody take something away from me? And it wasn't until I was much older, you know, a teenager, when I started to hear about what my mom had gone through. I was already a married woman with children of my own when I heard what my father had endured. So that whole mantra really didn't resonate with me until I wrote the book and started identifying myself primarily as a child of Holocaust survivors, which I hadn't done up to that point. Um, That's when it occurred to me that I also was obligated to educate other people about what had happened. And so that mantra, uh, you know, took on a life of its own since the book came out. Thank you. As you educated me, and I'd like to think I wasn't coming from a place of zero, but the Hungarian perspective of it, I had never embraced. And so that was a whole new lens for me because of your background, your parents' background. So I encourage everybody, this book that we've been raving, raving, raving about, it's called The Crate. It is brilliant. It is incredible. It's a fantastic must read. All right. I'm going to jump now to a nest of snakes. And please, maybe I could tell you a little story here. I want you to talk about this book and what the impetus was for you to write this book. But I came out of a private school. And your mom, like me, your mom was a day student, I was a day student. But there were other students in the private school that weren't. There were boarders or house girls, as we called them. They lived in the residences and they came from all over the world. And over the years now, we've had 20th, 25th, 30th, oh God, I've lost track, reunions. And I've always tried to host a little, hey, how are you, before we go back to the school and have the dinner in the gymnasium and listen to the old teachers talk. Some of the girls that have attended those pre-parties, I guess you could call them, have spoken about being residents at the school and how they would be afraid when this particular house mother would come to say goodnight to them. Now, they, they didn't get into it. Did they pursue it? Did they launch a lawsuit? Did they, you know, amongst all of ourselves, all these old women that were old at the time are now dead. But this is topical. The abuse, emotional, sexual, physical abuse that went on and goes on around the world in not only private schools, but also obviously this happened in the Catholic school, in the, in the Catholic faith. Talk to the global audience about this, what your impetus was for writing this book. It's interesting because both The Crate and A Nest of Snakes are taken from real-world events. Um, obviously, with The Crate, it was a very personal story that involved my family. With A Nest of Snakes, um, as I mentioned, I've been a lifelong writer, and since I graduated college, I've been a publicist. I worked in a PR firm in Connecticut for many, many years, and we happened to have several law firm clients, and so it would be my job to help publicize many of their cases in the media. In probably 2015, 2016-ish, Uh, I was working in the PR firm, 
And these law firms seem to have a spate of lawsuits where these middle-aged men came forward to talk about abuse that they had suffered back in the 1980s in these very elite, prestigious private schools in Connecticut. And as I said, there was a whole spate of them, you know, several people coming forward at once. And I was reading through the complaints in the cases, and I could not believe what these boys had endured. You know, they were children, they were vulnerable to attacks that came from all sides, you know, from the headmaster down to the janitor. They were just being preyed on. And there was this sort of culture of complicity where everybody knew what was happening and no one stepped up to protect these boys. You know, no one called the authorities, no one protected them. And I was absolutely horrified at what I was reading. And I started to think, you know, this could be a book. This should be a book because, again, you know, we authors, it's great that we can tell stories, we can be entertaining, we can be fun, but we also have a platform to reach a lot of readers. And so sometimes I think it's not a bad idea to talk about social issues that need airing, right? We can can shine a light on some social issues and be a little bit serious now and then. And I started thinking this could be a book, a fictionalized version of what these boys went through, but still something that that really gives a voice again to victims. And so I started doing research. And if, you know, if you, like me, would have thought that the abuse ended in the 1980s or 1990s or, you know, whatever, you would be wrong. I was so wrong because the abuse continues to this day. And it's definitely not limited to Connecticut or New England, even though there are, you know, very well-known cases of abuse. Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire was one of a a series of lawsuits against very, very well-known private schools. But really, all over the world, this has happened I know last summer there was a well-publicized case from Denmark where the crown prince and crown princess had to pull their 16-year-old son, Prince Christian, out of his private school amid all these allegations of physical and sexual abuse where the leadership turned a blind eye. So this is exactly the kind of stuff that I had written in A Nest of Snakes. And then even more recently, just a few months ago, you may have heard that Prince William and Kate had to pull George and Charlotte out of their London school, Thomas's Battersea, I think it was called, where a teacher there had been arrested and confessed to distributing child pornography all over the world. So it just goes on and on. So this is what I decided to write about in A Nest of Snakes, a really fictionalized version of all the stuff that I had been reading that goes on around the world. And, you know, my hope is that it might, I don't know, it might help a reader tell his own story or her own story and maybe even come to terms with 
some possible abuse that they had suffered as children. Thank you. It doesn't feel fictionalized when you read it. Every single piece of it feels completely real. So you are a brilliant writer because your research and the way you've portrayed this, it doesn't feel like a fictional account. Thank you. But I would think that absolutely this book will help because it shines a light on a subject that needs a light shone on it in the biggest possible way. And it starts to thread through to the residential schools and the abuse that the kids there went through. And the fact that people being complicit about this stuff is just, it's unspeakable, absolutely unspeakable. Right. The whole issue of the residential schools in Canada, well, not just Canada, but... Mostly right now, right? We're getting all the publicity, but yeah, there was a lot of it in the United States as well, of course. Yeah. I mean, again, just horrifying, horrifying discoveries. When we had a guest, Edmund Metatawaban, who was a, he's a First Nations chief and a recipient of the Order of Canada and a survivor of St. Anne's Residential School, and some of the stories that he told our audience were indescribable. I mean, once you've had your own kids, and I think this is something, Deborah, when you see in your own family what a 14-year-old boy or girl looks like and at what age, what does their life look like? And then to, to think about experiencing this, it's indescribable. Thank you. This takes a lot of, this takes a lot of bravery. I'm going to ask you, Deborah, what does bravery mean to you? When I say that question, what just give me your first off-the-cuff answer would be fantastic. My parents. Your parents. My parents were brave in a way that I'm sure I never could have been, you know, to be in such a scary situation and then to keep living and keep going and to start a second life the way they did, you know, there are so many survivors that I knew as a kid growing up because my parents had a very big social circle. They were very social and almost all their friends were Hungarian Jews who had survived the Holocaust. So I had many, many examples of survivors throughout my life. And, you know, there was, there was a big range of how they came out in terms of how traumatized they were and how they dealt with it. But, you know, for the most part, they all went on to live very fulfilling lives. They had families, they had professions, and they were able to just to keep moving forward. And to me, that's the epitome of bravery, you know, to be to be so fragile and yet to keep on living for the people who are counting on you, that's bravery. And to break the cycle. I mean, how did they come from that and endure what they experienced and what they saw and then raise families with all that inside of them? They've all got to have PTSD on some level and dreams and nightmares and things, but yet they were able to stuff it away somehow and, and bring children into the world and give them beautiful lives and educate them. And, you know, yes, I suppose when you were ready to talk 
to your mom and dad about it, they would give you snippets of it, but they didn't let it affect the future of their family. Yeah. That to me is just incredible bravery. Absolutely. But then again, you know, I think you referred to this once before that we live in these very, very easy lives. You know, I always say that I live in this bubble in Fairfield County, Connecticut, where everything is just so easy. You know, we have our problems are, are so superficial when you think about it in the grand scheme of things. And, um, so we don't have a lot of opportunities to test our mettle to see how brave we actually could be. But I, I still think that I could never have coped the way my parents did with adversity, especially at their age. Well, I guess we never know how strong or brave we are until we're put in that situation. And the human spirit and survival instinct, I suppose, is something we we may or may not get tested in our life. But because of that, and because in contrast, our lives now are so easy. I think there is such a responsibility to make sure the history and the stories are told. So how can our listeners reach you, Deborah, buy your books, follow you, all the things? I just can't say enough about your work. So how can they connect with you and be fans and read your books and buy your books and do all the right things? Oh, wow. I hope they do all that. Um, well, the books are available on Amazon and in bookstores um, and lots of other online platforms and in audio, which I'm so thrilled about. Both the books are out in audio. So I just have to give quick credit here because the narration in both of them is just fantastic. Cassandra Campbell is the narrator of The Crate, and she is just a rock star in the audio world. She has won every possible audio award and has done, you know, fantastic books like Crawdads and Lilac Girls and James and the Giant Peach, all kinds of great books. So she's extremely talented and I'm just honored to have her be my voice of the crate. And then with A Nest of Snakes, it just came out in audio recently. And uh, turns out that the narrator is from Canada, which I didn't pick up on when I was listening to all the different auditions and we were choosing, you know, the voice of the book. So yeah, both books are on audio. Both books are in paperback. Nest of Snakes is in hardcover. And anyone who wants to learn a little bit more about me or connect with me can come to my website, which is debbielevison.com, D-E-B-B-I-E-L-E-V-I-S-O-N.com. And I'm on Facebook and, you know, trying Instagram, getting used to all of these platforms. And that's Deborah Levison author on, on both. Thank you so much, Deborah. This has been so enlightening and so uplifting. I look forward to your next book, as I'm sure the world will, when they've read The Crate and A Nest of Snakes. Thank you for being on Breaking Brave. Thank you, Marilyn. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.